New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. America at this point in time may not manufacture much, but we do manufacture addicts. According to some statistics, one out of four citizens in this fine nation qualifies for that grim and perplexing title. And no doubt their family, friends, co-workers, cellmates, bed partners, bar dogs, and drug buddies have the scars to prove it. This statement was written by Jerry Stahl from the foreword of the book Writers on the Edge, 22 Writers Speak About Addiction and Dependency, which is edited by Diana Rabb. Most people are at least a little addicted to something, work, food, exercise, watching sports on TV, cooking, reading, the stock market, even washing hands. Today we'll be exploring a range of essays, memoirs, and poetry written by major contemporary authors who bring fresh and deeply honest insights into the dark world of addiction. Diana Rabb is an advocate of the healing power of writing and teaches nationwide workshops and in the UCLA Extension Writers Program. She's an award-winning memorist and poet and is the author of many books including Healing with Words, A Writer's Cancer Journey, Regina's Closet, editor of Writers in Their Notebooks, and co-editor with James Brown of Writers on the Edge, 22 Writers Speak About Addiction and Dependency. Join us for the next hour as we look at the compulsive and self-destructive behavior of addiction and the power of journaling with our guest, Diana Rabb. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Diana, welcome. Thank you, Justine. I just, I really enjoyed, well, I can't say enjoyed the book, but it was a powerful reading. And I, I must say, when I would read an essay or two and I would go along and my heart is pounding and I'm feeling, I, I know this place. I'm because it's so these writers are so articulate. Uh, and and then you turn the page, oh, and there's this poem. And it's such a breath of fresh air to just then have this other kind of writing that seeps into the soul and it's it just takes a moment to relax and be into the poetry and then go into the next essay. And uh, it's, it's just a magnificent piece. Thank you so much for putting it together. 
Thank you for reading it. Well, tell me, how, what was the idea behind putting this particular group of essays together, Diana? Well, I was moderating a panel on memoir with James Brown, and we were talking afterwards, and we realized there were a lot of parallels in our lives that led us to writing, uh, and they were all about pain of childhood. And so we thought uh, there must be other people also dealing with pains of childhood, pains of addictions. He had lost uh, his mother and his sister to suicide. I had lost my grandmother to suicide. I have a history of some addictions in my family as well, including depression, drugs, alcohol. And so we saw that there were a lot of parallels, and we thought if we are having these issues in our lives, then for sure there's other writers having similar issues that many of us have read about. And so we decided to collaborate on this anthology and bring together very well-published writers that have been battling all kinds of addictions. And, you know, most often people, when they think of addictions, they do think of drugs and alcohol, but really the book covers drugs, alcohol, sex, love, gambling, food, and there are many more, but these are the ones, and actually cutting is one of the latest ones, and tattoos. Um, I actually have a daughter who is addicted to uh, doing tattoos. And so I think, um, so basically what the, the the idea is to bring these writers together under the same cover and to show how writing helped them navigate through their journey of addictions. And so some of them have actually navigated successfully and some, you, maybe, maybe not. They're, they're, it's, it's not a book about here's how to get over addiction, but it's it's deeper than that. Can you say something about that? Well, you know, just like when you're reading novels or any kind or any kind of essays, you learn through you learn through uh, someone else's journey. So when you're reading the book, you might come up with some ideas on how to help with your own journey, uh, your personal journey, or a journey with a loved one to help you deal with the addiction that we're that is involved in your life. So it's a how-to book in the sense that it offers that, and the, there's actually a list of associations at the back of the book um, or as a reference that you can contact uh, for help. Well, let's say you mentioned suicide, and that, that's kind of, I was surprised by how often these writers were touched in some way, either their own thoughts of suicide or were touched by suicide of loved ones, friends, or family members. Uh, that really surprised me, but didn't, you know, yes and no. And so your own life has been touched by that. Can you say something about your grandmother? My grandmother committed suicide when I was 10, and she was my caretaker. My parents were working full-time, and she was in the bedroom beside mine. It was Labor Day, actually. And I had gone and knocked on her door to ask if I can go to a friend's house, and she didn't answer. I knocked again. She did not answer. I tiptoed in and saw she was laying on the bed. There was a novel on her chest and an empty bottle of sleeping pills. And, of course, at the time, children are very resilient. I didn't really know what to do except I knew something was wrong, ran out, called my grandmother, my mother at work, and uh, said something's wrong at home. And before I knew it, there was the ambulance. And... Um, and this was the 60s, and, you know, people didn't deal with depression and suicide that easily. It was everything, you know, sh 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 I wasn't even allowed to go to the funeral. So my mother, in her, in, in her own grief, she was an English major, she handed me a journal and she said, I know you're in pain, just write. When you were 10 years old? 10 years old, old she handed me a journal. Okay. 
And so I would sit in my closet, I had one of those walk-in closets, and I would sit and write about my pain. And I think that seemingly benign gesture of giving me a journal really did set the platform for my life as a writer. And that's how I'm trying to help others also find themselves and navigate through difficult times through writing. And then later, she gave you something else. I, I don't know how much later that those the writing of your own grandmother. So can you say something about that? Sure. Uh, my grandmother was an orphan in World War I. She lost her parents when she was 11. And she came to the United States uh, in 1939. And she had written not a journal during her time in Europe, but when she came over here, a retrospective journal that she had typed on a typewriter. And when my parents were moving from my childhood home, they were cleaning out her closet and they found this journal. It was long after grandmother had passed. And my mother handed it to me and I just said, wow, it was very powerful. And then I realized the, um, the, con the deep connection I had with her. At the time, I also was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I thought, gosh, I wonder if she committed suicide because she had breast cancer. It turns out she didn't. But uh, just the, the whole healing power of the written word was passed on to me from her, basically. Well, say more about that, what the power of journaling and writing. Well, you know... Uh, the journal, is, for me and for a lot of people, it's like your best friend, it's your confidant. It doesn't talk back. Uh, it doesn't matter if you have spelling errors or grammatical errors. Uh, writing is something that can transform you and help you into tap into your inner self, into your inner voice. Uh, it's very therapeutic and it's also creative. Just because you keep a journal doesn't mean it has to be published. It could be just for your own good. It just so happens all my books started in my journals because that's where my creative juices go. Uh, a journal is something that you can write in when you're having difficult times and also good times as well. My daughter got married two summers ago and I journaled about that. Uh, it's also, uh, the way I look at journaling is sort of, journaling is to self-expression is like walking is to exercise. And I, th I view journaling as a daily vitamin, you know. I suggest you do it first thing in the morning when you get up, if that's convenient for you, and make it a ritual. And 15 minutes to start and might end up as 30 or 40 and have a centering ritual, you know, light a candle, do some stretches, make a phone call uh, and always make a pattern of it. Make it an integral part of your life. I know so Oprah it's, it's, used to do, you know, dream journals at nighttime because she felt, you know, or sorry, dream journals in the morning and uh, gratitude journals at nighttime because that's a good time to sort of write down what you appreciate in your life. Mm-hmm. So in... One of your books turned out to be a journal about your bout with cancer. So talk about that. What, how did that help you and what, how did that come about, that particular book, Healing with Words, a Writer's Cancer Journey? Well, uh, I was diagnosed with my first cancer in just months before 9-11. And, um, you know, there I was healing from my massive surgery and, you know, the, watching the towers fall down. And so I was journaling. That sort of helped me through. And I put those journals in the drawer because I'm, I'm the type of person that likes looking at the brighter side of things. I try not to go to the dark side. I go to the dark side in my writing, but in real life I do not visit the dark side as much as, as, much as I, you know, I just don't want to. So I wrote these whole, all these journals and 
I've got a lot of pressure from my colleagues. You need to publish this. You need to publish this. So eventually I put the book together uh, and I call it a self-help memoir because I also, not only do I share my story, but I give blank journaling pages with prompts for people to write about their own journey and also the journey of their loved ones. That's always very helpful to have some prompts. What what do you mean by prompts when you say prompts? Okay, well, um, prompts would be, for example, like I would, in the first chapter, I would talk about going for my mammogram and then I would write... Uh, on a blank page, describe what it was like going for your mammogram, that kind of thing. And then I would go through the chapter of um, the surgery, you know, and I'd say, what was it like for you when you were saying goodbye to your body part if you were, you know, having this this kind of surgery? Um, And then people who don't know how to start journaling, that's always a very common question, how do I start? And I would just say, whatever's in your head should go on the page, you know, you can just write... Today I feel wonderful. Today I feel sad because... And the beauty is there's no beginning, middle, and end of the journaling process. It's whatever it's... Like we were talking before about stream of consciousness writing. It's just whatever comes into your head. You can be writing about your daughter or your mother or your father, and then suddenly you can be writing about how you went to the grocery store and you had to pay a dime for a bag because that's the thing that you do today. It doesn't matter. There's no flow. It's just whatever comes into your mind. For, for me, it sounds like journaling is more or less um, not coming from a, your logical, linear mind, but, but more or less something beyond that. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just one moment. I'm here with Diana Rabb. She's the editor of a book, Writers on the Edge, Writers on the Edge, 22 Writers Speak About Addiction and Dependency. She also, Healing with Words, a writer's cancer journal, and she has a new book of poetry called Listening to Africa, and we'll talk about that too. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Diana Rabb, and she's the editor, along with James Brown, of Writers on the Edge, 22 Writers Speak About Addiction and Dependency. And we're talking also about journaling and many other things. Um, If you'd like to be in touch with Diana or know more about her work and her writing, you can go to her website. That's dianarabb.com, and she spells her name R-A-A-B. Rabbit.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Diana, we touched briefly on in the last segment about suicide and how it runs 
a kind of theme that runs, or it's mentioned many times during during the course of these writers that you brought together. Um, it's why suicide, suicide and addiction. That's one of the, suicide as addiction. That's one of the taboo subjects in our culture, and it's brought out in this book and as that. Can you say something about that? Sure. Um, I'd rather first talk about the connection between suicide and addiction, and then we can talk about suicide as an addiction. So the way that um, I see the connection with writers who are addicted is addiction, the reason people are addicted to whatever they're addicted to is because of the need to transcend. They want to get out of this misery they're in. They want to get out of uh, whatever they've dealt with from childhood or from current life um, situations. And so they want to transcend. They want to go some other place. And in doing that, um, and the reason they want to transcend or, or move away is because they're probably depressed about a situation. And so the depression, we, we know that depression uh, is one of the precursors of suicide. And, you know, if you do any research on suicide, you know that uh, it would be very rare that you find someone that commits suicide that's not depressed. So that's the connection there. Now, suicide as an addiction, um, the connection that I see, you know, that suicide does run in families. I do not have, do not have the statistics right here, but it does because it's sort of like it's a way out. It's, but some people would say, okay, well, it's a hormonal thing or it's a, a brain chemistry thing. So what would you have to say about that? Well, I don't think there's always one reason. I think it depends on the person. It depends on the circumstance. It depends on a lot of factors. I don't, I'm, I'm really leery about giving one reason for a particular action. Mm -hmm. I think it's very complicated. Life is complicated. Complicated. Very it's complicated. a mixture. It's very complex. Exactly. And um, I, you know, I think one thing I will tell you that if someone threatens suicide, do not take it lightly because there's a reason that they're mentioning it. I want out. Well, why are they saying that? You know, I would not. Uh, there are people sort of like laugh and say, oh, she's just been saying that for years. Okay, perhaps. But there is a chance that eventually that will happen. So it's good to find help for that person or help that person yourself if you can. There was one essay in the book. I, I don't remember whose it was, but um, she really talked a lot about it. She was feeling it. And then she had a confidant, a good friend, someone who would listen to her and could talk her down mm -hmm. from her or up from her depression or whatever mm -hmm. it was. And, and uh and then it turns out this friend committed suicide. It was just, wow. So can you say something about Kind of shocking, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and, you know, um, the only thing I can say about that really is that you just never know. And also, you know, sometimes we gravitate towards people that are like us. And so there might have been sort of that thread that sort of um, kind of tied them together. You know, they... One of the things that this woman mentioned is when she went into the hospital room and saw her friend really gone, she was gone. She she actually did it and she could see, she describes the, the bruise around her neck uh, because she actually ended up on a respirator for a while before she actually passed. And it changed her life. It changed her whole view 
of the finality of that. And I think she has a line there about how n- no suicide is painless. It's, you know, we think we're going to transcend and get out of this, but there's a process that's not very pleasant in it. And it, she brought that out in her writing, and I think it really got me in the gut. Yes. Well, it's, you know, most people think of suicide as painful for the people left behind. But you're right, Justine, that it is also, I'm sure, painful for the person that is finding their way out. You know, one of my um, my mentors in nursing school uh, threw herself off a 30-story building. And, you know, she had her master's in nursing. She was brilliant. She was vivacious. What happened? You know, she um, she had committed suicide on the day that her her brother was diagnosed as schizophrenic and she just threw herself off a building now if I wish I could have been in her head I mean she did call me the day before and she said I think I'm being chased there was definitely some paranoia in there and I'm very depressed I'm being chased by the FBI and I said no you're not she says yes I know I know they're outside my house and they're just there they're going to find me and so I wanted to be in her head right there, but I, she did not make any, I mean, as some people make hints to suicide and others won't, she made no gestures of, I'm going to commit suicide, but she was definitely depressed and paranoid. So I, I think any psychiatric or mental change in a person needs to be evaluated immediately. Right, right. There, in, talking about friends, you had talked to her beforehand, and I just... um. I, there was one particular essay where he just he the man had just gone on drugs he had gone on alcohol he had just he he had lost his family he had lost everything I mean he was really out there his friends wouldn't even return his calls because they knew that he was going to ask for money and but one day you know he gets home and there are his friends and family and he's just shocked that they would care so much and they do an intervention and this was a success story in in one of the uh essays and talk about the need for friends and how important that is and how important it is for us to be aware of how we can affect another, even when they're in the depths of their addiction. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, a lot of people that are depressed, as you know, and tendency to addiction are lonely people. You know, they spend a lot of time alone. And so I know personally when I'm depressed, um, my therapist always says, you need to listen, find voices, find voices, find people to talk to, find uh, people that you like listening to, people that you like listening to you, that kind of thing. So friends and support systems are extremely important. Loneliness is a horrible thing. And just reaching out, sometimes it's not always easy to reach out when you're down in the dumps. But if you notice one of your friends down in the dumps, the best thing to do is to reach out. I know when my father died, my sister-in-law called up and she said, can I take you to the movies? And I went, the movies, that's not the one thing I want to do right now. But if someone is depressed, you know, you want to do something that is going to um, not necessarily distract them, but uplift them. Something spiritual, perhaps going to um, have or have something relaxing like a massage or or going and having some kind of, you know, holistic treatment 
or uh, perhaps going to a Buddhist center or something that will just sort of make them feel that there's a reason to live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in in that kind of friendship that we can be for one another, it, it reminds me that addictions of any sort, for the most part, are really diseases of isolation. And in this culture and where we are in our lives, um, we can get so self-contained in our homes with our entertainment centers and our this and that, and we don't, we, we get, we're getting more and more isolated. So can you say something about the power of isolation that takes us down into that depression? Yeah, I'm really fearful for the next generations in that sense. I really am. Um, I'm fearful that they, that they are sitting, you know, at their computers. They, I have a son that lives, he's wonderful. He's, you know, managing an edit, he's running a magazine. But he's in his apartment all the time, all the time. He's not depressed, but he's very isolated, but he likes it that way. Um, but there are people that are just working and working and working, and they have no human contact. I'm concerned about the human contact. I think it's so important, even if it's not you know, going to big parties, just to have one person that you can call on. Uh, and it's going to be a major problem, and it is already with the senior citizens. Oh, definitely. And it, just thinking about how hard, one of the hardest things for us to learn to do is to ask for help. That, it's easier to kind of stay isolated and depressed and then to reach out. But there's a natural human uh, capacity that we want to be of help for each other. I mean, we've talked about that on New Dimensions, how that's a, that's a natural tendency. But if we don't know that somebody needs help, we don't know to do it. So learning to ask mm-hmm. I mean, recently I've I've had to do that, and it's been huge for me because we're doing a major move from our our home and our office from one place to another, and I couldn't do it by myself. I've always been able to do everything by myself, and I've had to call out to friends. It's been an enormous bridge for me to cross, but... One where people have just come out of the woodwork and just said, yes, I want to be of help. Can I help you? I'm just, I'm blown away by it. I'm blown away by two things. One, how hard it was for me to ask. And two, how very responsive people have been. So um, how about yourself? When you went through your cancer, did you find that people were there to help and come support you? Well, in response to what you said, Justine, the reason that people said, sure, I want to help you is probably because you're a very giving and caring person yourself, and they probably wanted, made them feel good to give back to you. That's, that's what I'm sensing. As a matter of fact, in the recent article of Ashambala magazine, there was a big article on giving and the joy of giving and how so many people re- just get a lot of joy from doing it. Um, in terms of my cancer, I'm also the kind of person that never asks for help, ever. I'm always the one, like, I had three friends in the hospital last week. I'm bringing soups and bringing books and iPods. Uh, but And it's hard when you're not used to asking for help. It's really hard. But, you know, um, I don't know what happened. I can't remember. It was 10 years ago.
Um, I just didn't even want to be in the sick mode. That was my problem. I just didn't want to be identified with the cancer patient. I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be back to my vibrant life where I was doing a lot of things. I didn't want to be identified as that person. So I didn't ask for help, really, except for my husband and my kids. I wanted to kick the disease and just move on. But there are people that sort of like being the victims. I'm, I'm really... Right. Mm-hmm. I try not, I try not well, to be that. Well, <laughs> journaling is what, what transferred you or mm-hmm. transported mm-hmm. you into the next um, phase mm-hmm. and the healing. My, uh, I'm here with Diana Robb, and she is the author or the, uh, the editor of Writers on the Edge, 22 Writers Speak About Addiction and Dependency. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Diana Rabb, and if you'd like to be in touch with her or to find out about her workshops and and suggestions on journaling or whatever, whatever all of her writing, you can go to her website, dianarabb.com. That's uh, Rabb is spelled R-A-A-B.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Diana, I mentioned at the first of this program about how in this particular book, this one, Writers on the Edge, about addiction and dependency, it, as we go through it, as I mentioned earlier, there there's some poetry inserted between some of the essays. And there was one particular poem that just popped out at me. I, I read it. It just got me. I, I understood it. It went way deep in my soul. And then I read it to my sister. And I've, I've just been talking about this for a while now. It's so powerful for me. And I'd like to read it now. It's called The Doppler Effect, and it's by B.H. Fairchild. When I would go into bars in those days, the hard, round faces would turn to speak something like loneliness, but deeper, the rain spilling into gutters or the sound of a car pulling away in a moment of sleeplessness just before dawn, the Doppler effect. I can just feel that 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 noise where you hear the car and it's raining and you hear it coming, coming, coming. And then it's receding. You hear that sound, that Doppler effect. I would have said shrewdly then of faces diminishing slightly into the distance, even as they spoke. Their children were doing well somewhere. Their wives were somewhere too. And we were here with those bright euphoric flowers unfolding slowly in our eyes. And the sun, which we had not seen for days, nuzzling our fingertips and licking our elbows. Oh, it was all there, and there again the same, our heads nodding, hands resting lightly upon the mahogany sheen of the bar. 
I just, I, I have to stop there too. That sheen here, you're in that darkened room and that bar, that sheen polished bar. Then one of us would leave and the door would turn to a yellow square so sudden and full of fire that our eyes would daze and we would stare into the long mirrors for hours and speak shrewdly of that pulling away, that going towards something. That just, um, Diana, just really nice. got to me. Uh, I, I know that, you know, I, I, I can feel my head just turning towards that dar- d- door. You're, you're in this darkened, darkened place. And I think of that darkened place as like that place of depression or, or, or you're drinking and, and suddenly somebody walks out of the room into the daylight and that door opens and there's a square of bright, bright light. And you remember, oh, it's daylight out there. I, I've heard like uh, Las Vegas or gambling things, they, they, they make sure that you don't ever see the daylight and don't remember that night and day come and go and you just lose track of time. And, and there in that bar, that, you, that door opens and the light is there. And that light, it's like... That's the hope, the fire, the light of day, the hope of us moving into the, the fire and the creativity of our life, that, that doorway that's shining, that, that reminds me of going for what, what is healthy and good. Mm-hmm. And there's another essay that I'd love for you to talk about, and this was... Um, uh, I think, oh, it was Margaret Bullet Jonas. Uh, she talks talks about the rubber, or not the rubber, but the yellow ducky, putting down the ducky. Can you talk about that essay? Yeah, I mean, she's she's a minister, and she was a food addict, and she wrote this amazing essay, which just uh, is actually not. It's not even an essay; it's a book excerpt. She does have the book. It's a, a part of a, a book called Holy Hunger, and uh, it's just incredibly powerful. It's wonderful. She's just a great writer. So describe, can, can you describe the Sesame Street sec, segment? I'll let you describe that, that, it. I love please. the way you talked about it. Oh, oh <laughs> should, should I describe it? It, just, uh, it was so great. She, she describes how uh, it was a Sesame Street ex, uh, thing that she had piece that she had seen years before. And Ernie has this little ducky that he walks around with. And there's this band, she describes this jazz band comes into view and comes out and he gets all excited. He wants to join the jazz band and he wants to play the saxophone. And, uh, but in order to play the saxophone, he'll have to put down the ducky. And he doesn't want to put down the ducky. And then she said that there are all these people, there's, um, uh, Barbara Walters and Harry Reisner and Paul Simon and Ralph Nader and other people come to give him advice. Ernie, put down the ducky. <laughs> you know, put down the ducky. They always say if you want to make music, you got to let go of the ducky. And that just, that was so great. I just really got it that, that when we have to let go of that thing that we're holding so tightly. Yes. 
you have to, and really something has to set you on that path. It just doesn't sort of come from one day to the next. There has to be some kind of epiphany or some, some event that's a, that makes you, that jolts you and says, okay, I'm ready to make a change, you know, whether it's the 12-step program or it's someone uh, in your family that just, uh, I have a friend who is also an alcoholic who uh, is a big smoker and you just ended up in the hospital on a respirator and he said, okay, I guess this is my wake-up call. No more mm-hmm. smoking, no more alcohol. And it, it's all its all about those wake-up calls. You know, when I had my cancer, I had my wake-up call. And, and, and you were talking before also about um, uh, who to surround ourselves with. And I know if you've ever had any kind of traumatic event in your life where life-changing cancer or any kind of illness or accident, you know that you just want to be surrounded by positive energy. And so I made a decision in my own life, okay, I'm just going to remove if I can, all toxic people from my life because toxins make you sick. And just like toxins you inhale and you uh, digest make you sick, so do toxic people. Of course, if they're family members, it's a little trickier, but you can actually put them, learn how to put them in a box and put them on the shelf and bring them out when you need them and just don't have them sort of uh, taking over your life, especially if you're trying to heal or get over an addiction. You know, it's very, very important to have a place for those toxic people You know, we were talking earlier about journaling, and I was thinking, and I haven't done this yet, but I really want to, we were talking about prompts, that that in one of your books, Healing with Words, you give a lot of prompts for writing, for journaling, and um, I was thinking one of the prompts for me would be, what ducky am I holding what, what's the ducky that I'm holding that's preventing me from being a totally healthy person? What is my addiction and what is what is that ducky that I'm holding? Um, so talk talk more about journaling because I know it's it's very much a part of your life. Yes, it is a part of my life and I'm really, a, you know, as Justine, you said before, I'm an advocate of writing for healing because I believe that, um, you know, therapy is important, but journaling is a lot cheaper. Um, so journaling um, is a place you can work through your illness it's a place that you can heal Uh, basically journaling is a place that it's that you can become empowered by who you are say more that you can heal through journaling what do you mean by just writing words you can heal well sometimes we feel bad but we don't really know why we feel bad and if you just do stream of consciousness writing, it just sort of leads you, surprisingly so, can lead you down the path to find your answers. Just by letting your subconscious take over. And if you do it long enough or if you do it regularly enough, you get into this sort of like trance-like state. And you can, I've oftentimes looked back to my journals and went, wow, that's amazing that you felt like that. I didn't, I didn't know that I felt like that, but it came out of my journal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, and also clears your mind in, in doing that. It also clears your mind. And so therefore your mental health status will improve. Uh, if we have bottled up emotions and we, we just feel tense, whether it's a full moon cyclical or whatever it might be, it's a place to release all those emotions. Uh, it also encourages reflection. I think very often we're just so busy, like robotically going about our daily life. We don't even reflect on so am I happy with what I'm doing with my life, you know? And so the journal will sort of help you 
find your joy because right now I'm on this path of finding my joy and I try to tell everyone find your joy because you're just here for a short period of time so whatever brings you pleasure that's where you should go that's so important what you just said finding joy and how busy we are in our lives we we don't take any time to reflect on uh was this a good experience? Is this something I'd like to keep repeating? Or is this something that maybe I should let go of? We don't take that time to find out what actually makes us happy, what actually puts us in joy. Yes. I mean, I um, I've, I was just mentioned to Justine before I've gone back to school. I'm 58 and gone back for my doctorate. And um, in psychology, because I've always been interested in what makes people function and what, what, what inspires people. And I'm very fascinated by why some people are this way, why some people that way. I mean, I, is it the nature? Is it nurture? And so I think, you, and I've just sort of followed that path and serendipitously walked into this program by just seeing an ad in a paper. And I kept seeing the ad in different magazines and papers. And I thought, okay, this is calling out to me. So I think a lot of us don't listen to messages enough. I think we're all basically intuitive, but we don't, we don't listen to that inner voice. We just, oh, well, I should be doing this because every one of my family is doing that. Um, so I think if you start listening to your inner voice, you will find joy. And in, in the journaling, you, you don't have to worry about punctuation or spelling. You, I think you've mentioned that, but people say, oh, I can't write. I don't know how to write. What would you say to them? Correct. Well, one of my biggest successes as a journaling teacher was when I was teaching high-risk uh, teenagers. Yeah, and these were, they were part of gangs. They were bad kids on the streets. And I brought them into the school after-school program, and I taught them how to journal. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, whatever. And as soon as I started talking about, you know, my daughter was a drug addict and my daughter has a tattoo addiction and all this stuff, suddenly I came down to their level and they said, oh, okay, she's kind of cool. I think I'll write. And some of them wrote pieces that I could have published, honestly, but they were never encouraged to write because they were so scared about making mistakes. Right. And suddenly the barriers were down and I said, no, like you say, grammar doesn't matter, spelling, cross out, just don't tear out the pages because you don't know if you're tearing out something that was important. And so they tapped into their inner, their inner voice that they were looking for. And it was just rewarding for me to see them walk out of the classroom just with a smile on their face. They walked in angry, oh, like, oh gosh, yeah. you're making me do this. So I think a lot of, um, it can be very healing and a lot of, across the ages. It's something you can start when you're young and go on to your old age. I'm here with Diana Rabb. She's the co-editor with James Brown of Writers on the Edge. 22 writers speak about addiction and dependency. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Diana Rabb, and we're talking about journaling, poetry, addiction. Let's talk about poetry now. Um, can you share a poem that you have written? Sure. I'm going to read a poem from Healing with Words, which is about my cancer journey. And actually, the book is a self-help memoir, which has journal entries, poetry, and also some prose about my story, and also some prompts or, or guidelines for the readers to write their own journal. I'm going to read Message to My Family. The day after I die, and hours after my ashes cool, please find me a purple urn with a window. Purple nurtures my spiritual strength, and windows keep me alive. Remember, I'm claustrophobic, and the thought of being stuck inside a box absolutely frightens me. Since I must indulge in my favorite hobby of people-watching, which sends me to my journal where I find solace and joy. Remember, writers need time alone. So once a day, my window should be closed, just once a day after I die. Diana, has poetry come easily to you? I mean, how, how did you start writing poetry? I started writing poetry, I think I did when I was a little girl, but I never really published it. I went to a poetry reading uh, by Billy Collins, who, uh, by the way, I hated poetry in high school because it was, I'm not knocking Chaucer or Shakespeare. They were wonderful, but they just were not accessible to me. I couldn't relate to, they weren't talking about everyday things that I could relate to. They didn't resonate with me. So I went to a Billy Collins reading. And if you know Billy Collins, his poetry is extremely accessible. And it's like it tells a story. It's basically... Uh, narrative poetry, which is what I write. And so I bought his books. He's funny. He's serious. He's accessible. I can relate. He has this poem called Forgetting, which is great. And so I just started in my journal just writing my thoughts. Um, and really, you can write a story in poetic form. It doesn't have to be... Uh, it, it just It's just the form. Is really, it's called a poem, and as the one I just read. And it's just it's almost like minimalist prose. And so you just you can write a story and just take out all the ands and the thes and the buts and, and words that really you don't need. And you just want to have the core. Co poetry is really, um, it's very succinct and it's very, it's very visceral. I usually write poetry, I, I will write it, you know, maybe 15 poems at a time that I won't write for six months. Or I'll just, it, it just, it has to be, I have to be feeling very emotional about something. And it just sort of, I go into this, I actually wrote a couple on the airplane today. I go into this zone where I don't even realize what's coming out of me. It's, it's, it's trance-like. Um, so I think you really have to tap into your subconscious. It has to be about something that you're concerned with. My, one of my first poems was called Heritage Sponges, because I was doing the dishes one day and I had this sponge that smelled so bad. What is with it? Why am I keeping this thing? Why, you know? And so I wrote a poem about it. It was kind of funny, but it was, you know, I decided that I kept these sponges because my daughter was a vegetarian and animal rights activist or whatever. And, and so it became this sort of, just looking at the sponge made me think about it, basically. So you have to, it's all about getting down to the details of a moment, a feeling, an image, and just digging right in. That's why poetry um, can help you tap into your subconscious. And most people would say, oh, I could never write a poem. So what advice would you give to someone who said, oh, I can, that's beyond me. I can't write a poem. 
Well, the first thing is read poetry. You know, it's just like when I teach memoir, I, you know, I, the first thing I do is go around and ask the students, what's your favorite memoir? And they say, oh, I never read. And I said, well, you can't be a writer unless you read. So I say the same thing about poetry. Uh, read poetry. And Billy Collins is a good place to start. Actually, he, he was Poet Laureate of, the, of New York, actually of the United States, and he started this program, Poetry in the Schools, and he had on the loudspeaker people, re, um, people read a poem a day to the, to the kids. And it really, it's, and it's a, he compiled it in a book called, I think, it, don't quote me, I think it's Poetry 360 or something like that. And um, he just inspired a lot of school children to write poetry. And it's just very accessible. He writes about everyday things. But again, it's all about focusing in on a feeling, an image, something. Uh, it's like putting your, lens, your, your, um, your magnifying lens on a subject, mm -hmm. basically. One of the ways uh, that I get into poetry when I think I can't do it is to do a haiku where you just, it's just three lines and it's so many syllables. Sometimes it's 17 syllables and sometimes it's more, but usually it's some sort of nature image. And anybody can do that. You can just kind of fool around with words. If something grabs you, a bird lands on the railing and just take that and just kind of run with it or, and you'll surprise yourself. I have surprised myself in that way. Exactly. And, and Garrison Keel is another one that has an anthology of all kinds of poetry. And you might just buy that collection and find a poem, a poet that resonates with you and just buy their whole collection. So there's all kinds of uh, ways to get into poetry. And the one, one thing I like about poetry is it's, if you like writing and you don't have a lot of time, it's quick. You know, it's like mm -hmm. instant gratification. You know, we're all into instant gratification. You mentioned that it, to be a writer, you need to read. And to be a poet, you, you need to read poetry. And, and reading poetry, often it's really good to read it out loud. Because poetry is an auditory thing to me, it seems to me. Would you agree? Very much so. Uh, very much so. I, I very much agree. And they have these you know, open mic uh, readings at bookstores and also any bookstores that are left now. But, and coffee shops, which are wonderful. Yeah, poetry slams. Exactly. Right? And even rap, I mean, mm -hmm. some some rap is really excellent. Um, I'm, I'm not talking about the ones that get those hard images that are very violent, but there's some, some wonderful rap uh, poetry that's going on, and young people are gravitating towards that. Absolutely, because it's, oh, it's fast and it's short and it's captivating, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, compelling. There's, uh, I want to read a couple of when you spoke about if you want to be a writer, then you need to read. And in your book, Writers on the Edge, the, some of the writers, I mean, they're really excellent writers. And I wanted to read just a couple of short excerpts to just show the kind. These are from really excellent writers that are able to, to go deep inside and pull out from their depths um, the joy, pain, agony, all of it, of, of, of addiction and dependency. And the first one I want to read is Anna David. And she says at some point, she writes at some point in her essay, all the love cocaine had made me feel for myself had turned to hate. And there was no way to break up. I couldn't toss my belongings out the window in a rage 
change my cell phone number to cut off all contact, file a restraining order, I was stuck with me. So she really so got it. She, 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 this is like her turnaround time when she realized, hey, I'm here with me. And, but, but her whole image, like, hey, you know, the, the, when we talked about the transcendent, how we start our addictions because we want to transcend. And she really points out how all of that transcendence then turns to hate and self-loathing and depression. It takes us not up, but it takes us down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's another writing, uh, Gregory Orr. He's just wonderful. Um, and uh, I, I think, if I remember correctly, it wasn't so much his addiction, but it was his father was addicted. And how children want to rescue their parents and he became like this rescuer personality but towards the uh, end of his essay he, he writes this he said if there's a god of amphetamine he's the god of subtle carnage and dubious gifts who lives in each small pill tasting of electricity and dust if there's a god of amphetamine my father was its high priest praising it, preaching its gospel, lifting it like a host and intoning. Here in my hand is the mystery, a God alive inside a tiny tablet. He is a high God, a God of highs. He eats the heart and juice the brain. He eats the heart to juice the brain and mocks the havoc he makes, laughing at all who stumble. Put out your tongue and receive it. <laughs> so David uh, and Gregory Orr talking about his father and his addiction to, to booze and, and pills and how that affected him. So reading, reading this and really going into the heart of addiction and dependency and seeing, you know, so many of us have, have this. Either we... Or have our own addictions, or someone in our family has something, and and we hold the shame of that. Is that we were talking off mic not too a few minutes ago, and I was talking about my own mother and and her her alcoholism, and I could feel that shame just right down in my gut again. It just never leaves. It never leaves, and you know, like we said earlier uh, in the introduction, that one in four people. Uh, there's addiction is one in four people in the country. And, you know, the, the range is huge, you know, drugs, alcohol, gambling. I actually wrote a, I, I blog for the Huffington Post and I wrote a blog a few weeks ago on uh, my addiction to writing. They didn't like it. <laughs> you're, but, but that's a positive addiction, I think. I don't know. Yes. Uh, you're, well, if people would like to, to be in touch with you and your blog and to find more about your work, and Diana, they can go to your website, which is dianarab.com. That's rab spelled R-A-A-B, dianarab.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website. Diana, oh, that's newdimensions.org. Diana, thank you so much for being with us on New Dimensions. Thank you, Justine. I've been speaking with Diana Rabb. She's the co-editor of Writers on the Edge. 22 writers speak about addiction and dependency. 
My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3431. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.